I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. And during this summer internship, we'll be going through the book of Ruth because, of course, I'm an intern. And this is a joke. Interns always have to choose between Ruth or Jonah, right? Uh, And so I decided to go with Ruth. So I'll invite you to turn to the book of Ruth right after the book of Judges. And we'll be looking at the first six verses this morning under the heading of Providence Veiled When Disaster Strikes. We'll give our attention to the Word of God now. The Word of God reads this morning, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Araphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and had given them food. And here ends the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but this Word of God shall stand forever. Dear congregation, The promises of God do not just pertain to the spectacular events or the epic events of history. They are promises also for the mundane, for the ordinary, and for the normal. What I mean by that is that God works even in the minute of your day. God works even in the boring aspects of life to accomplish His sovereign purposes. His purposes of salvation. You see, the book of Ruth, and especially over these next six weeks as we begin to go through this book, we will see that the same God who spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1 and 2, the same God who parts the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, the same God who thunders on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, is intimately involved with this one family who immigrates from Israel to Moab. He superintends, which means he is intricately working and ordering things to accomplish, get this, the tragedy that follows. He's involved even in that. But he is also the God who picks up the tattered remains, 
the broken pieces of this family and works it all together for the good of those who love Him. Actually, we'll see by the end of the book, He even works it all together for their ultimate good. For the salvation of their souls. On that point, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, Faithful God, says this. He says, the book of Ruth shows us in miniature form, but also in considerable detail, how wise God's sovereign purposes are. Close quote. This is the whole thrust, the whole idea of the book of Ruth. At the beginning of the book, as we just read, Naomi and Ruth are the most despised people in Israel. Naomi left Israel and moved to Moab, and Ruth herself is a Moabite. Yet this story is included in the Bible because these despised nobodies become part of God's story of redemption in Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible open and you flip just one page over to Ruth chapter 4, we see that by God's sovereign working, right there in verse 18-22, through 22, through Ruth, by God's work, one of the greatest Old Testament figures will come about. That's King David. The only other time Ruth's name is used in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament, where Matthew lists the genealogy of Jesus Christ, trying to show that Christ actually goes all the way back to Adam. The only other time Ruth's name is mentioned in the Bible is in Ruth chapter 1. She's part of the family of Christ. Get this, beloved, this morning. There is Moabite blood in King David's veins. There is Moabite blood in King Jesus' veins because God graciously rescues Ruth and Naomi. What I want you to see by the time we're done with the book of Ruth is that this isn't just the rescue of Ruth and Naomi. But through their offspring, God also rescues us. For from Ruth comes Obed. Through Obed comes Jesse. Through Jesse comes David. And as Matthew says in Matthew 1, through David comes the Christ. Through David comes the Christ. So what I want you to see, at least in our first Sunday together, our first sermon together, is our theme, which of course is included in your uh, bulletin insert. God is present even in life's tragedies to bring about His salvific purposes. God is present even in life's tragedies to bring about His salvific purposes. And we want to see that in two points this morning. Our first point is the spiritual bankruptcy in Israel in verses 1 and 2. And then the judgments and the grace of God in verses 3-6. through That's the spiritual bankruptcy in Israel and the judgments and grace of God. 
Let's look at verses 1 and 2, and we want to notice the spiritual bankruptcy of Israel. See, the book of Ruth begins in verse 1 with a description of the time in which these events take place. Verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. We'll stop there. Now, this is not merely a date stamp so that we can look in the back of our Bibles or our Sunday school classrooms and figure out where chronologically uh, Ruth exists in narrative history. Actually, what we're seeing here is that the author is giving a description of the character of the time in which these events take place. He's describing the character of the time of Ruth. You see, when the writer records in the days when the judges ruled, he's actually making a theological statement. Now, Ruth comes immediately after the book of Judges, right? Young children here? You know the books of the Bible? Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And if you have your Bibles open, and you flip from Ruth one page backwards to Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, what we see is that the era of the Judges is marked by everyone doing, look at verse 25, what is right in their own eyes as opposed to doing what's right in God's eyes what's morally right what God has told us to do in his 10 commandments in his word in the five books of Moses which of course they would have had at that time and the synagogues would have regularly preached from if you read through the book of judges this is a time that is characterized by violence It's not characterized by moral integrity. It's characterized by moral decline. The worship of God is in decline as well. And if we were to go through the book of Judges, we would see that a pattern begins to emerge. And if you don't get this pattern, if you don't understand the context, it will be very challenging for you to understand the book of Ruth. So, what I want you to do is to pay particular attention here to what I'm calling the cycles of judgment that we see in the book of Judges. Cycles of judgment. See, the cycles of judgment are fourfold in the book of Judges. We see this over and over again. The first thing that happens in these cycles of judgment is that God's people rebel against God. Choosing sin. That's the first aspect of the cycle of judgment. The second aspect of the cycle of judgment is that God reacts. God responds and acts in judgment against them. So God's people sin. God responds with judgment. Then thirdly, the people of Israel cry out to God. They cry out in repentance and asking for mercy. And fourth. God, at the end of each cycle, God sends a deliverer. He hears their cry for mercy and He delivers them from His judgment. But the great problem of the book of Judges isn't just that people sin and then you go through the cycle and God sends a deliverer or a judge as that book calls them. The great theological problem of Judges is that as the book goes on, 
the most important step of this cycle begins to fade away, that being repentance. As we go through the various books, or sorry, the various judges, the various scenes of that book, repentance begins to become less and less of the response to God's judgment. God's people stop responding to God's rebuke with repentance and faith. Then towards the end of Judges, and then into the book of Ruth, we see that Israel as a nation has comprehensively lost its way. At the end of the book of Judges, they are every bit as bad as the pagan nation that had previously inhabited the promised land. Other than the times that God sent a deliverer and turned their hearts back to Him, Judges is known as a bleak, a dark time of disobedience. So when we are reading the book of Ruth, And it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. It's not only describing the character, but it's also describing God's response to their sin in Israel. The setting of the book of Ruth is that Bethlehem is in the middle of a cycle of judgment. Do you see it? They are in the middle of having sinned against God, rebelled against God, choosing unrighteousness, and God is judging them. As He said He would do. God, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, said that if you will sin against Me, if you will choose unrighteousness, I will plague your land with famine. This is a sign of God's judgment. They're in the midst of the cycle. They've rebelled against God. They've chosen sin over His righteous way. So God has afflicted them with famine. He's afflicted them with judgment. And it is resting upon their land just as He promised He would do. Just in that first one verse, we see the moral and spiritual decline in Israel, in Judah, and Bethlehem. But then in verse 2, we see the moral and spiritual decline of an individual family. So the author is narrowing his focus here. It goes from the whole nation to a province to a city, now to one family. And what we want to see in verse 2 is... Look at the ill-advised move, the ill-advised exodus from this family. The narrator is zooming in from the big picture of Israel's moral decline to one family and their character. Now this family throughout the book of Ruth is going to serve as what we might call a microcosm of the whole nation. Young children, what microcosm means is that it's a part of something, but it's representing the whole of the people, right? Um, So think, and maybe another example might be if you turn on the evening news and it says, the White House says, well, you know that the White House isn't actually talking, right? But it's representing what the president is saying. 
which therefore represents what the United States is saying. So it's a part representing the whole. I trust that you're tracking with me. And the Bible reads, it says, a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now the book of Ruth is full of irony. You're going to see God's wit throughout this book because Bethlehem in Hebrew language means the house of bread. It's the house of bread. But there is no food there. Because of the famine. One commentator calls Bethlehem in this instance the empty breadbasket of Judah. Now, God said that famine would be a sign of his judgment. So, the question for Israel, the question for Bethlehem is will you cry out to Jehovah? Will you trust in his provision? Or will your response be to judgment to do again? what is right in your own eyes. The Scriptures say this family left Israel and traveled to Moab. Now we need to pause here for a moment and ask, is this wrong to do? Once I did a Bible study uh, through the book of Ruth back when I was uh, in Canada, and there was a young man there who had moved from some country in Africa in order to come to Canada for a better life. Uh, And he was very offended by the fact that I said that Elimelech should have stayed in Israel. Now we should be clear that the promised land was a special place for the people of God. It says in the Scriptures that God had delivered them from Egypt. He had helped them in the conquest. He says that Canaan is a foretaste of their heavenly home. God had called Elimelech to live in Israel. As He called all of Israel to live there. But if we apply this to our lives, as this young man did back home in Canada, he's asking the question, is it wrong for me to move from whatever country to Canada? Is it wrong for us to move to another city, state, or country. Now, my answer to this is not necessarily, but it can be. The example we see in the Old Testament is that the saints are always to follow the Spirit of God. The saints are always to follow the Spirit of God. There is nothing wrong with, uh, with us moving to New York or Orlando, or Canada, as close to Moab as that might be for some of you. That's a joke. Come on. We'll loosen you up eventually. There's nothing wrong with moving wherever the Lord might call you so long as it's the Spirit of God that's the one leading you. But let's say this for example. Say you were offered your dream job. You get a great salary. You get the benefits. The housing market is cheap. But there's no faithful Bible-preaching church. Should we make that move? See, there was once a time in the history of the Reformed churches that before we asked what the salary was for the new job, the first question was, where will I go to church? 
Where will I fellowship with the saints? Where will my children be educated? We need to have the Spirit of God as our priority as Christian people. You see, in the Old Testament, Jehovah said that His Spirit dwells in Jerusalem. Therefore, Elimelech had no business leaving the place where the Spirit of God is. Moab was Israel's sworn enemy. The Moabites came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. We see that they sought to curse Israel with Balaam in Numbers 22. They seduced Israel to worship false gods in Numbers 25. They oppressed the people of God in recent history in Judges 3. Elimelech's name even means, my God is king, but in the days without a king, he chose to do what was best in his own eyes. Instead of responding to God's famine with repentance and faith, instead of trusting in the Lord to provide, he moved to follow what seemed to be the best prospects for his life rather than trying to be close to the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, isn't this true for us today in our lives as well? Every day we are confronted with decisions that will direct our course for the future. But if we are honest with ourselves, more often the factors that weigh most heavily on our minds is what will bring us most comfort. What will bring us most security. But what we need to recognize this morning is that we need to be people of the Spirit of God. We need to follow His Spirit. And that doesn't mean that the Lord is always going to lead us to pleasant pastures and still waters. But the Spirit of God often in the Old Testament led Israel into hard and difficult places. The Spirit of God is what led uh, Israel into Egypt, to the wilderness, to Canaan. It led Daniel to the fiery furnace. It led Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The Spirit of God is what led Jesus to the cross. But Israel was able to endure every trial, every hardship, because the Spirit of God was with them. We too can endure all of life's trials if God is with us. This should give us an unspeakable comfort. Even in the challenges of life, we can know when we are near unto God that God is good. That nothing happens to us by chance. He may bring us to trials in this life, but as He is with us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He can sustain us in the trial, but don't we know it to be true, beloved, that when we move farther away from God's Spirit, when we begin to pursue our own, uh, what we consider right in our own eyes, don't we know it to be true that we find ourselves like Him? Asaph in Psalm 73. I begin to slip. My faith begins to fail. We need God's Spirit in our lives. And so you may be here this morning and really questioning. You might say, what's so wrong with Elimelech's choice? In Judah, it says that they are suffering and they are hungry and there is food in Moab. It seems this morning, you might say, that Elimelech made the sensible choice, right? I want you to notice, secondly, 
the judgments and grace of God. Look at this with me. We'll just go back to verse 1 for a moment. It says, Elimelech is going to sojourn in Moab. The word sojourn, it means an alien who is living in a country not of his origin as a guest. And I thought it was kind of funny when I was studying it. I guess that's describing me here in the United States. But it says here in the first few verses that it went well. He's able to support his wife and his sons. But look at verse 2. It says, they went into the country and remained there. And then verse 4, it says, they lived there ten years. So they go from becoming guests of the country. Over time, Moab becomes their home. Brothers and sisters, Moab was never to be the home of the people of God. And Elimelech, we'll see in a moment, will later die. And Naomi could have chosen to repent and return home to Israel, but instead she saw Moab as a more promising future. In other words, she and her children would rather dwell in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. But notice in these next few verses, just look at this with me, the tragedy that comes upon her in Moab. Let us be clear this morning, even though Moab seemed to go well for a while, it, not, it brought no lasting hope to Naomi. Verses 3 and 5 are full of tragedy. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Then, verse 5, both Malon and Kilian died, so that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. She goes from having a family that's young and healthy in the green pastures of Moab with all prospects of having grandchildren and a family to take care of her in two, or sorry, excuse me, three verses, her whole world comes crashing down. Sound familiar? The book of Ruth starts with a description of God visiting Israel with judgment. Now we're seeing what judgment looks like on an individual basis. Ian Duguid, a Bible commentator, says this. He says, Naomi was left alone, a remnant of one, under the judgment of God. Close quote. You see, without a family, that meant she had no food. She had no one to take care of her in a family-oriented culture. She has experienced the bitter emptiness that she will call herself later. She has experienced the bitter emptiness of the land of compromise. Now even she is in the cycle of judgment. The question is, will she respond to God's judgment? That's the question of this morning. Will she respond to God's judgment in repentance and trust? Let's notice finally this morning the grace of God. You see, brothers and sisters, the life of Elimelech teaches us that life has consequences. He made poor decisions. He forsook his, inherit, his heritage. He took Moabite wives for his children, which we're not touching on, but is also not advisable and Moses says not to do. He chose in his later years to die in the land of Moab rather than in the land of his fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet the most important story about in the book of Ruth isn't about how bad Israel screwed up. 
The most important thing isn't about how the depths of their sin. Look at verse 6. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. This is important. For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. This could be easy to overlook. But remember the background of Ruth, of Judges, and the cycles of judgment. It's a pattern that judgment is, must be followed by repentance and blessing. Israel rebelled. God judged. And they responded in repentance and faith. The famine in Bethlehem is lifted. This can only mean that God's people saw their sins and His judgment and repented and the favor of God was restored to Bethlehem. They have repented and now receive God's grace. The question on the reader's mind is will Naomi follow suit? Yes, Elimelech and Naomi were disobedient. Yes, they experienced God's judgment. This should be a constant reminder, beloved. Unfaithfulness leads to death. But brothers and sisters, believe that God's judgment upon sins is sure, but even more consistent than God's judgment upon sins is His desire to save sinners by His grace. If we're honest with ourselves, we are more like Elimelech than we care to admit. We often make decisions without reference to God. We make mistakes. We sin. We leave Jerusalem. When apart from God's power, we would be like Elimelech. We would be like Malon. We would be like Kilion. We would be dead and buried with nobody remembering who we are. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you in Moab this morning? Have you sought what brings you comfort or or security over where the Lord would have you? It's the Spirit that needs to stir our hearts to leave the land of compromise, to swallow our pride, and return home to God. We will not be met by a God who will stand there on the porch and tisk tisk our wanderings when we return. We will not be met by a God who is cold and austere. But as we heard last Sunday from Reverend Admiral, we will be met by a God who runs to the prodigal, who puts shoes on their feet and rings on their fingers and robes on their backs and slaughters the fattened calf, we will be met by a God who loves you in Jesus Christ. You have a future in the Lord. Naomi has a future in the Lord because of the grace of God to receive lost sinners. Here to today, in this church, in Trinity United Reformed Church, there is hope for us in Jesus Christ. 
Even for those who have chosen compromise over promise. Even those who have chosen sin over God's righteousness. Those who have persisted a long time in rebellion. There is hope in the grace of God. And we even haven't even touched on the namesake of this book. Now it's often been said that this book should actually be titled Naomi, since it's principally about her. But look at the character through whom this grace will come. Very quickly in verse 4. Sandwiched in between the tragedy of verses 3 and 5, there's this little ray of sunshine. It says, These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Little mentioned in the first five verses. But Naomi is coming home, not by herself, but she's coming home with one who will be the grandfather, sorry, the grandmother of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's conclude this morning. Even though Israel rebelled and God judged them, even though Elimelech and Naomi rebelled and God judged them, turning to Him in repentance and faith, God's answer is grace. They needed a deliverer. That was part of the cycles of judgment. And God will give them a deliverer in King David. And through King David will come our eternal deliverer, the deliverer of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God had never left them and always had a plan to redeem His people despite their sins in Jesus Christ. Beloved, God has not set His love upon Moab. He has not set His love upon the world or any other thing. He has chosen to set His love upon Israel. Jerusalem. Upon His people. And may we be people who are known to draw, to draw near unto Him, to desire to be near unto Him, and to find His life-giving presence as what it is. Life-giving. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give You thanks that there is life in Your presence this morning. We thank, Lord, of our, the many of friends and families whom we know who were raised in the covenant and who have, like Elimelech and his family, left the Spirit of God for the greener pastures of Moab, so they think. We pray, Lord, that You would draw them to Yourself, that You might bring them to the end of their wickedness, show them the emptiness, the tragedy that comes with choosing the world over the Spirit of God. Help us to be people who desire to be near unto You even when life is challenging and we endure many tragedies. But let us know that there is hope and joy in the grace of God even amidst these hard things. Lord, bless us and keep us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.